0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Let's open our Bibles now and we'll get into Psalm 16. This is the last Sunday in our our Psalms mixtape series, and we're calling it mixtape because it's our favorite Psalms in the book of Psalms. Uh, and we're going through as if they're songs and just looking at them, and there's a huge variety here, and some of you guys might be like, well, you didn't get mine on the mixtape, you know, my favorite. I would love to do it next summer because I have had more positive response and seen more fruit in people's lives from this than anything I've ever taught in my life. It's been awesome, so maybe this will be our summer thing as we'll go through the psalms, but we've seen psalms of celebration. We've seen psalms of fear. You know, we talk about anxiety, we've seen psalms of repentance, we've seen kind of meditative psalms that kind of talk about God's word and what it means to live in God's word. We've seen psalms of depression, deep, dark things, and we've seen psalms of wonder. You know, David taught last week about a psalm of wonder at God's power, the power of his voice. And this Sunday, though, guys, is a psalm of joy. It's a song of happiness, and this is where we're going to end this series. And I want you to look at all the words here that show that this is a psalm about joy. Look at verse 3. He talks about his delight. In verse 6, he talks about uh, pleasant and beautiful. Verse 9, glad, rejoices. Verse 11, joy, pleasure. If you go through and you circle all the kind of happy words, tons of happy words. This is a psalm about joy, about happiness. And um, one of the things we have to do before we really talk about joy is define it. It's very important to define joy. I know a lot of Christians will say, well, you know, it's kind of hard to define, and it's like, it better not be, because it's something that we're called to pursue. I really like a definition that John Piper gives, by the way, this is an awesome book on joy, um, called The Dangerous Duty of Delight, been super helpful to me, but his definition of joy is this, See see how this fits. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul, produced by the Holy Spirit, as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. See the parts there I like that Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world Guys, Christian joy is a good feeling it's happiness okay and I know a lot of people like a lot of Christians like to try and distinguish between joy and happiness they say, well you know joy isn't really happiness something deeper it's kind of hard to define, but guys I think, you know, I think I know why people do that. They do that because they don't want joy to be confused with, like, circumstantial happiness, that kind of superficial circumstantial happiness that as soon as something bad comes by, it evaporates. They want to say it's not like that. And I agree. Christian joy is a happiness that is way more durable, right, than circumstantial happiness. But it is happiness. You know, to say that happiness and joy are different things makes it confusing. It makes it hard to pursue something you can't define, you know, if it's not happiness, I'm not sure what it is, and you're kind of giving me a definition, I don't know what to pursue. It is happiness. And it's biblically unwarranted, guys, to say that joy isn't happiness. It isn't superficial happiness, but it's a durable happiness. I mean, look at, look at Psalm 16 here. The synonyms he, he uses for joy are words like delight, pleasant, beautiful, verse six, glad, verse nine, rejoice, verse nine, joy in 11, pleasures, in 11. I wonder if you guys think about God that way. Do you you think of him as full of pleasures forevermore? So joy is happiness. It's just a more durable kind. So joy is a good feeling in the soul. Now, why is joy important? Why would it be so important? I mean, the Psalms talk about joy over and over again. Why is it so important? First reason it's important, joy is important, is that everybody, everybody pursues joy. Everybody does. Everybody pursues happiness. Blaise Pascal, the, ni- the 17th century mathematician, physicist, he said this, Everyone seeks happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they seek happiness. That's the cause of some going to war and others avoiding it. The, the will never takes the least step but to seek happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man, even including those who hang themselves. Kind of ends dark, doesn't it? But if you think about that, if you think about somebody that hangs themselves, what are they doing? They're at least trying to get away from suffering, right? It's kind of a pursuit of happiness. Everybody pursues happiness. Guys, you were wired for joy. You actually have wiring for that, right? Like if you think about like um, nerves, you know, a nerve comes, meets another nerve, there's a synapse, and their neurotransmitters go across. There's little receptors for those neurotransmitters, right? You are covered, your soul is covered in receptors for joy receptors for joy from God, a kind of joy that would be of maximum intensity and never-ending duration. Like, you come equipped with those, you know? Everybody seeks joy. Also, guys, joy is commanded. This might sound strange to you. I don't even have to leave the Psalms, though, to find a half dozen verses that say that we're commanded to have joy in God. The Psalms are actually obsessed with joy. There's all kinds of things in the Psalms, depression, anxiety, trials, all these suffering. But over and over again, there's a pursuit of joy. Uh, Psalm 32:11 uh, says, be glad. That's a command. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all upright in heart. It's a command. Um, Psalm 37:4. this is a command. Delight yourself in the Lord. That's the most non-bummer command, wouldn't you say? Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm uh, 97, 12 says, rejoice in the Lord. It's a command, O righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Uh, Psalm 149, 2 says, Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. And not only are we as God's people commanded to rejoice in God, but the nations are too. If you look at Psalm 67, 4, it says, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the people with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Like, There's a command for joy. And Not only are humans commanded to have joy, the creation's commanded to have joy. Take a, take a look at Psalm ninety six eleven. He says, Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the fields exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. <laughs> like, it, all of creation was created to rejoice in God and rejoice in its creator. Guys, we're commanded to seek happiness. These are the most not-bummer commands you could ever find to seek joy. Um, you might have a question, though. How can God command me to be happy in him? How can God command an emotion? Because I can't just make myself have joy. Have you ever tried? You ever thought, like, i got to be joyful. All right. You know, like, there's no way to do it. You can't do it by force of will. Can't click your heels together and make it happen. Right? Can't snap your fingers. Can't just, like, try harder. you got to try harder to have joy. Like, that doesn't work that way. Right? How can he command us to do something that we can't do on our own? You know what, guys? It's nothing new that he commands us to do things we can't do on our own. He commands us to forgive, something we can't do on our own. He commands us to be content, something we can't do on our own. He commands us to love our enemies, something we can't do on our own. He constantly commands us to do things we can't do on our own. So we have to come to him for the power and for the ability to actually do the things he commands. These commands were never meant to be done on our own, right? Remember, joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit, right? So we must seek him for it. And so joy is important because everyone seeks it. We're commanded to do it. And thirdly, joy is important because it glorifies God. If you look at Psalm 102, he says an interesting thing. He says about obedience to God. He says, serve the Lord with gladness. Isn't that interesting? The Lord wants us to serve him, not just serve him out of just raw duty, but to serve him out of gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Guys, God is more glorified when we serve him with gladness, with joy, than if we serve him just out of mere duty with no delight, okay? And that might be a new concept to you. You might think that God just wants you to do the right things externally and say the right things and be a good little soldier and lined up and he doesn't really care what you feel like inside. But that's certainly not the case. He says, serve the Lord with gladness. God is more glorified when we serve him as a way to maximize our own joy. Now that might freak you out if I say that. God is more glorified when we serve him in a way to maximize our own joy, but it's biblical and I'll show that to you. Uh, Let me give you an example from marriage that fits this really well. Okay, so imagine I go out on a date night with my wife Tasha, and we go to Provecho's over in Sun City, really great Mexican place. Uh, This isn't theoretical, okay? Like, I did do this. We do do this. And so we have chips and salsa and carne asada, maybe a mule, and we're headed home. And she says to me, hey, thanks for taking me out. Okay, I could say one of two things to her on the drive home. You see which one's right, okay? I could say this, well, Tasha, I... I made a commitment to you 20 years ago, and um, I just want to keep that commitment and be a good husband because that's what good Christians do. Not romantic. Or I could say, you know what, the pleasure is all mine. The whole reason I took you out is because it makes me happy and I just enjoy being with you. Which does she prefer? It's interesting, right, that the one where I'm trying to seek my own joy is the one she wants to hear. Isn't that interesting? She doesn't say, oh, I see. It's just about you and your joy. You're so selfish. She doesn't say that, right? Right. Which one glorifies her? The second one, right? That I'm doing this because I delight in you, I enjoy you. Like, I did this because I like doing this, because I like being with you, right? Which one glorifies me? The first one. I'm just a super committed Christian husband guy that just does the right thing, right? That glorifies me. And so that's why I say, guys, that it's the same way with serving the Lord. When we do it out of our own joy because we our joy in him, it makes us happy, that glorifies him. When we serve him out of raw duty with no delight, it glorifies us. It, it's, it, it's, it's surprising, but it's true. A couple years ago, I was having lunch with a relative of mine, an older relative of mine. He's connected with me by Facebook, which is not always a good thing, and um, we got together because he's, a, he's an atheist, and we just kind of wanted to meet regularly to discuss these things. And by the way, if anyone here is in that place where you're not sure you believe in the Lord, you have questions, stuff like I love doing that. You know, I would drive halfway, meet him, we'd hang out, we had have real good discussions. There was good Mexican food involved there, too. Um, so there's a theme. But um, he, it was interesting, we are talking and everything, and we're talking about Christianity and everything, and he goes, hey, I just got to tell you something. You know, looking on Facebook and stuff, he goes, it seems like you're doing something wrong to me. And I say, oh, well, what is it? And he goes, well, I just think you're going about Christianity wrong. And I said, oh, wh- what is it? And he goes, it just bothers me that you seem to be enjoying it too much. <laughs> and I was like, that's like the best criticism ever, you know? <laughs> Seems like you're enjoying it too much. So he had this kind of, you know, this view that like a good deed's only a good deed if you totally don't want to do it. And you have no delight in it, you know, and so I explain him. Nope, not doing it right. Not doing it wrong. That's the right way to do it. We want God is that good that serving Him is a pleasure, you know. Not that serving Him isn't hard, and there aren't difficulties and all that. But there's this underlying joy that keeps us going. When we serve the Lord because we're looking for joy in Him, we show we show the world. Verse five, you know, He says that the Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. He's like, You're my portion, you're my cup, you're my beautiful inheritance. You know? We show that he is the greatest treasure and the highest reward. And so guys, when we when we serve the Lord that way, we're basically saying, Hey, there's nothing heroic here. There's nothing heroic about me following the Lord. I'm actually doing what I know is gonna make me maximally happy forever. Like, there's nothing heroic about this, right? He is that good. He is the treasure worth pursuing. It would be totally right for you to throw everything away and follow him. He's that good. He is the treasure. He's the chosen portion. That glorifies God, not us. Guys, this is massively good news. You were created to be a living receptor of happiness. You were made for full, never-ending, ever-increasing joy in him. You are commanded to seek your highest and greatest happiness Which is found in him, in his presence. You're commanded to do that. Um, And your happiness in God serves the highest purpose of creation. How cool is that? You know, because this whole world was created to glorify God, right? It's a stage on which everything is meant to be a mirror pointing back to the goodness and the worth and the value of God. Everything in this world was created to be a stage to show that God is the greatest treasure. And when you are happy in God, when you're showing that you are joyful in God and enjoy following him, you're glorifying him. You're doing exactly what you're made for. It's actually every Christian's duty to be as happy as they possibly can be in God. Did you realize that? That's pretty crazy, isn't it? It's your Christian duty to be as happy as you can be in God, to find your joy in him. What could be a better purpose of life? I mean, philosophers sit around and they debate like the purpose of life, or they say there isn't one, you know, more likely. And, uh, but what about this for a purpose of life, to glorify God by being maximally happy in him? Guys, this is amazing news. And this isn't even like the good news yet. <laughs> This is, this is good news about why you were created. You might ask this question, though. What do I do when I don't have joy in serving him? Okay, So you're reading along in the Bible, and you come across a command, and you realize there's something in your life where you need to apply this, and you can't imagine that you're going to have any joy in doing this. Okay, so not you guys, but let's just say if somebody did, <laughs> somebody's reading the Bible, and they see something, and maybe that's the part you like read faster through, or you're like, Oh, why did I read this book? I knew that was in there, you know? And you see this thing and you're thinking, this command could not, I could not possibly have joy in God doing this. What should we do? Should we wait till we feel like it? Well, that's not an option, right? We can't just wait till we feel like it. Do we just do it and not worry about joy? We're commanded to serve him with gladness. Um, so we do neither. We, we, should be content. we should not be content, guys, to serve him without joy, but we shouldn't use that as an excuse not to obey him either. So what do we do? First thing, confess your lack of joy. He can handle that. You can say, Father, I want to serve you with gladness, but I'm really struggling to see how this, how serving this person the way you want me to is possibly going to be a path to joy. you confess it? Second thing would be pray for joy, guys. Joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit. So you say, Father, I'm not content to just give you my actions without giving you my heart. I'm not there yet, but I pray, Lord, you would give me joy. Make me happy to do your will. You know, when I step out and obey, even though I don't see any joy in this, would you meet me there? And would you just surprise me with some sort of burst of happiness in you that all of a sudden I find myself strangely happy to do your will? And then you step out and do it. And I'll tell you guys, so often, I think you guys could attest to this, so often you obey him in a certain area and you're surprised by how happy it makes you, you know, even in some really bitter, difficult situations that he meets us there. So how do we pursue joy? Well, we saw one thing, which is prayer. But what are some other ways that we pursue joy? I mean, if we're commanded to be happy in God, but joy is something you can't like, just force yourself to have, right? It's produced by the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit, right? How do we pursue him to fill us with joy? Well, prayer is one way, but there's two other ways that I see that um, David lets us in on what he does. And, and the first one that I see is in verse 4. He turns from idols. As a pursuit of joy. Take a look at it. He says, For the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He's saying, David's saying, idols, false gods, are joy killers. He's saying, the sorrows of people that go after these things, Multiply. Like, that is not the path to joy. And you can see the two ways that these gods in his time, these idols, they were served. You see what they are? That's kind of creepy. The first one's like drink offerings of blood, okay? So the blood of an animal probably pour it over the altar or whatever. So they would take a thing that cost some money. It was something that, like, cost them, you know, some of their livelihood, and they'd pour it out. They'd serve the, 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 the god that way or the idol that way. What's the other way? It would take their name on their lips. He said, I won't take their name on my lips. The other is to call out for that thing to rescue you. So one is I serve it and then when I'm in trouble, I look to it to rescue me. I call out. And he says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to call out to these idols and I'm not going to trust in them to rescue me. Now you might be saying to yourself, like, that's real helpful, Eric, but I'm kind of not doing that already. (laughs) Right? Like, Like I really stopped that whole pouring that blood out on the altar thing like years ago. That was so 2010. For me, I'm really beyond it. But You know, when we think about these idols and stuff, we're always really quick to say, like, not me, right? Like, you you think of some ancient culture or some really far away, and like, yeah, those guys are crazy. But, you know, in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 14.3, God reveals to Ezekiel that you can take idols in your heart. Idols can be something of the heart. He says, son of man, these men have taken idols into their hearts and put stumbling blocks of iniquity before their faces. So idols are something that can be of the heart, and that's the way we're going to be tempted to do it, Right? An idol, guys, or a false god, is something that you trust in to give you fullness of joy. Something other than God that you're trusting in to give you fullness of joy. And core idols are things like pleasure, comfort, control. Anybody got a control idol? Like things controlled, right? Control, human approval. You know that the thing that keeps you going is that people think you're a good person. People people think you're you're good. Um, comfort could include things like leisure and uh, you know not having to like do a whole lot or um, or help other people. Anything you're looking to more than God to give you fullness of happiness, a fullness of joy. Idols, guys, are almost always good things that have been made ultimate things. Um, because guys, it's totally right to have joy in other things. You get to hear the wrong thing and think, if you have joy in anything other than God, that somehow that's wrong, that's not wrong. And we see that even in this passage. Take a look at it. David says in verse 3, he says, For the saints of the land, which are believers, that word saint can be angels or it can be um, God's people, but it says of the land or in the land, so we know they're people. For the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So he delights in God's people. We can delight in things other than God, and that's right, and that's good. He does here. Um, just one second on that, it is so good, guys, to gather every week with God's people, isn't it? You know, he talks about the delight of God's people. He delights in them. He says they're the excellent ones, and you know, they're, they're sinners like, like us. But to him, it's, it's wonderful to be with God's people. And I just want to commend you guys. You guys are a great example of verse 3. I mean, the way that you guys stay, you know, until we close the doors. We have this place till 12. We try and get done by 11. So you have a whole hour to fellowship and and hang out together. And I just love how people linger. I mean, we're putting stuff away and stuff, but there's like really good fellowship happening. You have a whole hour to practice your gifts, whether it's encouragement or prayer or prophecy or hospitality or mercy or teaching. Like you have this opportunity to pray with one another. You know, there's this cool opportunity. It's almost like you get a small group and you get a worship service in one if we stay and maximize that hour. And so I just want to say you guys are awesome at this. And I just think you guys, when I read this verse, I thought, ah, oh, these people are like this. They they believe that the saints of the land are the excellent ones in whom they're is all their delight. And so it's totally right, guys, for us to have joy in things other than God, like his people, like your spouse, like your kids, like your friends, to have joy in your work, your career, um, to have joy in your art, the things you create, maybe your art or your music, to have joy in that, to have joy in your studies, maybe you're into sciences or you're studying literature or something like that. It's good to have joy in those things. But when we begin to look to these gifts of God, For our fullness of joy, more than we look to God for that, then they're idols, okay? So these things make great gifts, but they make horrible gods, okay? And you guys know that. You guys know that when you made your career or your studies or even your family, your God, they make horrible gods. Um, The worst thing that can happen to you is that your spouse would consider you their god, That would actually be a horrible thing. You might think, "Oh, like that'd be great. She'd like adore me, and I'm the center of her universe." It's heinous. (laughs) It would be heinous because you can't give that person the joy that God can give. You are going to fail that person over and over and over again. It is a way more secure foundation for them to find their joy in God and use secondary. And so when we find our joy centered on these things, they become idols. And he says in verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after other gods multiplies. They're joy killers, guys. They're killjoys. How can we know? This is a question that a lot of people ask. How can we know that something's an idol? Especially like single guy you know, looking around, you know, hoping to get married, and, you know, pursuing somebody, and he might say something, this is college mystery all the time, is, um, you know, how can I know that this isn't become an idol to me? Or, you know, somebody's, you know, they're doing school, and they're working really hard, He maybe get in a professional program or something like that, and they're like, I just don't know if it's become an idol, maybe I back down, I'm like, no, you need to work hard, like, what are you talking about? You know, I look at this guy, I'm like, certainly not an idol, you're not doing well enough for that to be an idol. Um, (laughs) But... uh, (laughs) But how do I know if it's become an idol? There's two ways to know something's become an idol. The two ways are there'll be symptoms of idolatry, and you'll be willing to sin to get it, okay? Those are clear signs it's an idol. Because I think once people start thinking about idols and stuff, they start finding idols under every rock, you know, and they become very painful to deal with because everything, oh, I think this is an idol. Oh, my car's an idol. It's like, okay, calm down, you know? How do we know something's become an idol? It'll have symptoms, and and you'll sin to get it. What are symptoms of idolatry? Things like anger can be a symptom of idolatry, covetousness, despondency, fear, bitterness. I mean, bitterness is a symptom that somebody's taken your idol, right? Um, Anxiety, not always, but sometimes can be a sign that you're worried your idol's slipping away, right? And you're anxious about it. Despondency would be, I lost my idol, right? Um, And so uh, these things can be symptoms of idolatry. Covetousness. Somebody else has my idol, right? And so these can be symptoms of idolatry. I, years ago, I wrote a question in the back of my Bible as I was going through, because we get these feelings, right? We get these feelings of like covetousness. We get these feelings of like bitterness. We get these feelings of anger, and a lot of times we feel really justified in feeling them, but we really need to look for like, what's the idol under that? What is my heart like grabbed hold of and has to have that's that's making me miserable? And so I had this question in my Bible, and it was this. Um, what do you want so badly? This is a question to myself. What do you want so badly today that it's making you depressed, anxious, covetous, bitter, or angry? What is making you sick of soul? That's the idol you need to repent of today. Pray and confess it to your Father. And that question has helped me over and over again where I go like, I feel miserable. <laughs> I have no idea why I feel miserable. And to look at that question and just think through it like, what is, it? What is my heart grabbed onto other than God that is destroying my joy? Idols will have symptoms and will be willing to sin to have them, and their kill killjoys. Verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after other gods will multiply. But what's cool, guys, is that idols can be defeated by finding a greater joy. You know, you got your heart all wrapped around something, and you're feeling miserable because you can't have it, and then you see greater joy in God, and you go like, oh, you know, like, I want him, right? I want him instead. Uh, Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord is our strength. So the second thing that this guy does, David, in verse 8 is so he... He he turns from idols as a way of pursuing joy. And then in verse eight, it says, Look at what he else he does. He says, I've set the Lord always before me, because he's at my right hand I shall not be shaken. He sets the Lord always before him. What does it mean to set the Lord before you? It means to to do everything you can to see the Lord as clearly and as consistently, constantly as you can. Isn't that cool? Set the Lord always before me. Like you you know, you put a maybe a picture of your family or at work and you, you see these in workplaces. People have a picture of their family or whatever. It's just like this is what I'm working for. This is a nightmare, but these people need me, so I'm gonna keep doing this. So to set the Lord before us is to is to Try to see the Lord as clearly, as as constantly as possible. That's what David did. And a thing happens in our souls, guys, when we see the Lord clearly. We get an increase of joy, and we get a decreased desire for sin. Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Because, guys, sin is only attractive when you're empty. You realize that, right? Sin's only attractive when you're empty. When you're full of joy in the Lord, you have no appetite for it. It's like you go out for a really good meal and you're just full, but you're full in a good way. Maybe like sushi full, you know, where you're not like dying. Nobody has to wheelbarrow you out of there. But you're like a nice full, right? You have that nice full feeling at a great meal and somebody comes up to you and they, they offer you some like moldy scrap of bread out of the trash. You're like, No thanks. Like, I already feel full, and I'm a little concerned that I might lose some of this fullness if I already eat that, right? That's the way it works with joy in God, is that when we're full of joy in God, sin is not very attractive. Sin is not attractive to you right now. I almost guarantee it. During this worship service, you're going to have, like, probably the highest level of joy or one of the higher levels of joy you have during the week because we're all gathered together, and we're all worshiping together, and our minds have been set straight, and we set the Lord before us. And so right now, you're pretty immune. If somebody were to offer you sin, you don't want it. What happens later? Monday, about 11 (laughs) o'clock, joy's low, right? And then they offer you that moldy scrap out of the trash. If you do that to somebody that's been starved for weeks, they will eat that thing no matter what the consequences. They're hungry. Sin is attractive to us when we're empty. And I know, guys, some of you guys are finding your battle with sin so impossible because you walk around half starved all day. It's no surprise. We have to, have to, have to have the joy of God. It's our strength. George Mueller said this George Mueller was a guy who lived in the 1800s, and he had these orphan houses. And the writings about him seem impossible, but he must have had some sort of gift of faith, gift of prayer, because what he would do is like, you know, they didn't have milk in the house, and they're like, hey, you know, we don't have any milk. And he's like, let's pray. You know, he's that guy. And you get around the table, everybody would pray about milk, and then there'd be a knock on the door, and the guy would go, hey, my cart broke down in front of here. I got all this milk. It's going to go bad. You guys want it? Like, that kind of stuff would happen to him, like, all the time. He had kept a record of it so that people would know how faithful God is to answer prayer. So, very strange, wonderfully gifted. God did something amazing in his life. He said this, the first and great primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. He said, like, job one, when I wake up, get my soul happy in the Lord. He said, the first thing to be concerned with is not how much I might serve the Lord, though he did all the time, or how much I might glorify the Lord, but how much I might get my soul into a happy state, how I might nourish my inner man. The most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of God's word and meditate on it. The the first thing he would do is try to get his soul happy in God. This is a guy, amazingly productive and stuff like that. But he said, I don't think about that first. I think about, I set the Lord before me. What are you doing every day with God's word to make yourself as happy as you can be in the Lord? I think that's the thing to answer. I mean, we could do this. We could be like, "Hey, you been reading the Bible lately? How much? You know, like you could do that. Or you could say, like, how... What have you been doing to make yourself happy in the Lord? That's really the goal of reading Scripture, is to see the Lord clearly and and have that burst of joy. We're after joy in Him. It's our strength. It's every Christian's duty to be as happy as they can be in God. And, hey, I'm not saying it's not a battle. I mean, if, if you think I'm trying to make it easy, like, oh, we'll just all go around happy. It's super easy. Listen to the message I did on Depression. From the Psalms, listen to the message I did on anxiety. From the Psalms, I mean, this is a battle, guys, but this is a battle worth fighting for. It's worth fighting a battle for joy in God. It's it's about His glory, and and guys, this is really cool timing because as we add David and Josh um, as elders to serve alongside me, it's only fair that we share with you our strategy we're using on you. So we've been using a strategy on you, okay? And it's only fair you know about. This is the strategy. Same one Paul used. This is it. He says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we're workers with you for your joy, for you stand firm in the faith. He says, our job is not to lord it over your faith. Our job is to be workers with you for your joy in God. That's our plan. Our plan would be to somehow consistently bring the scriptures prayerfully to you in such a way that you see the Lord as clearly as we possibly can. We set the Lord before us, your joy increases, and you become more like Christ. Tim Keller says this. Listen to this. This is so cool. In the end, it's the joy and wonder of the gospel that will change you. Only the exper- that experience will sufficiently reprogram your heart. Okay. Let me read it again. In the end, it's only joy and wonder in the gospel that will change you. Only that experience will sufficiently reprogram your heart. Because we can use other tactics. We could use guilt. I don't enjoy that one. We could use guilt. We could use the kind of like um, the Christian macho, like, hey, you know, this is what good Christians do. And, you know, if you're a good Christian, you'll do this like we do. Look at us. You know, that kind of thing. Those kind of things don't reprogram your heart. They will make you act differently, maybe for a time. But the only thing that will reprogram your heart, guys, is joy and wonder in the gospel. And so that's our plan, guys. Remember that joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see clearly Christ, the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. Uh, how does this relate to the gospel then? You know, I said that the gospel is what transforms us. How does pursuing joy relate to Jesus in the gospel? Do you guys realize that even Jesus served the Lord out of gladness, out of joy, with with a with a motive for joy. Take a look at Hebrews 12:2. It'd be totally worth turning there. Hebrews 12:2. Talks about Jesus. And he says, "Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith." And then listen to this. Speaking of Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Isn't that amazing? Why did Jesus go to the cross? It says here that he went for the joy set before him. He had an expectation of joy. He had an expectation of the joy of being exalted at the right hand of God in the presence of all you redeemed people. Isn't that awesome? He was thinking ahead. He was thinking ahead of what it would be like to be ascended, the right hand of the Father, and be there with all of us who he redeemed, the, 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 the reward of his suffering. Um, Jesus did this, guys, because we had shut ourselves out of joy. I told you all about pursuing joy and all this stuff. But the problem is, is that as sinners, we've all shut ourselves out. That door got locked, right? You guys remember in Genesis 2 and 3, you remember Adam He's created and placed in a beautiful place, and he's got fulfilling work, and he's got excellent company, and he's got the heart-thrilling presence of his creator. And then God tells Adam uh, that he can eat any tree. This is, like, very generous. This is the way God's commands are. You need any tree except for one. It wasn't like, hey, you can only eat this one. It's completely, you know, free of all different pesticides and all this. You know, it wasn't that kind of thing. It was like, you can eat all these except this one. Super generous. It was, it was all about Adam trusting God. It was all about him trusting a God that adored him. (laughs) Adam knew that God adored him. He adored him. He adored his wife. You know, God adored Adam and his wife. And, And it was all about trusting that God who loved him and delighted him and to tell him what would give him perfect happiness. And what did he do? He distrusted God. Adam didn't trust the Lord and instead thought he could find greater happiness in sin. And so he was banished from the presence of God. Remember, very dramatic. Banished out. They have to leave Eden. Um, there's a, there's a, a, an angel there with a flaming sword, not like the chubby baby in a Hallmark car, but like a soldier uh, um, angel blocking the interest. They were banished from the presence of God. And we have all made that same disastrous choice, haven't we? We've all been told by the Lord, like, this is what will make you happy. Here are my commands. They're good for you. This is the path to joy. Follow me, and what have we done? We've, in a million different ways, made the same exact disastrous decision. And it's disastrous, guys, because it's a choice to abandon the only one that can make us happy. It's like the universe is a vast desert, and there's one fountain full of living water, and we said, I don't want it. And we're out there eating sand. And someday, you know, the Bible tells us that fountain is not going to be accessible at all. And, um, and that's why C.S. Lewis, he, he says, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. No such thing exists. You know, and you say, well, I'm pretty happy without God right now. You're happy without God right now because there's little sprinkles coming off of that fountain as it pours over. There's drops of water that are dropping on you. You're getting common grace from God right now. But there's a time where even that's removed. Um, our sin has us headed for a place of banishment from his presence, a joyless place. But the cool thing is Jesus, it says in Hebrews here, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of, of God, the right hand of the throne of God. Guys, Jesus went to the cross. There was no joy in the cross. It says that there was shame, there was pain. The cross was about Jesus in his real physical body being suspended by his wrists with nails. And I added this to the communion table so we can remember these things. But um, hanging by his wrists, right? Three nails, one through each wrist, one through both ankles, and he hangs there, and he hangs there suspended, naked probably. That's the way they did it back then. Exposed. Shame, right? Spit upon, insulted, hated. You know, any random person that was just like a bitter person could come by and just yell stuff at him and, you know, spit on him and, and think of him as the worst of lowlifes. And when Jesus did that and he died in our place to give us joy, he, he, he was later, he was raised and he was ascended. And when he was ascended, he went up with his physical body, and now he is in the presence of the Father. And do you know what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus' current status? You think about, like, uh, on Facebook, you can put your emotion that you're having. You know what Hebrews says about the emotion of Jesus right now? It says in, in Hebrews 1.9, God, your God, speaking to Jesus, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond all your companions. He is right now the happiest of all beings. There is no being in the universe that is happier than Jesus Christ right now. And what's really cool is he does something quite expected, that if you would merely hope in what he did, if you turn from your sin and just say, I want what you did for me, he will grant you full access back to the one who you were made to delight in forever. not awesome? And you'll have joy now, and you'll have fullness of joy later. Jesus talked about this fullness of joy. He said that when you, in the resurrection, when you're raised, and, and you get to enter the world to come that he's creating and making all new, he says this, Enter into the joy of your master. Matthew 25 says that. Isn't that cool? Enter in the joy of your master, which tells us this is a joy that you didn't earn, this is joy of your master, that your master earned on your behalf. You get this unearned, eternal, ever-increasing joy as a gift. He earned this joy and gives you as an unearned gift. I just want to ask you this. It sounds like Princess Bride. How does that make you feel? How does it make you feel to hear that? Does it feel like a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as you see the beauty of Christ in the Word? Isn't that awesome? That's the joy of the Lord that we're feeling. And that's the way that Christians become more like Christ is by being filled with that joy and freed from sin. There's a couple other benefits I want to show you real quick. First one is benefit of pursuing joy in God, a well-tuned heart. Look at verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, In the night also, my heart instructs me. Really interesting. He gets counsel from the Lord, but he says his heart instructs him too. And I know what you're thinking if you're like a real solid Bible guy. You're thinking, oh, no, the heart is deceitful above all else. Desperately wicked. Who can know it? Right? That's That's from Jeremiah, and it's true. That's Jeremiah's statement about the ruined heart, right? That's the ruined, corrupted heart. What is he saying here? He's saying that heart gets rewired by the gospel. You could have a heart that actually is more and more pliable to the Lord, to where your heart could instruct you, because your heart's been made new by the gospel. Um, The music of the gospel retunes your hearts. It makes our hearts more like Christ's hearts. That's why you can see in Psalm 37, 4, it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Isn't that interesting? That seems impossible. If I delight myself in the Lord, he gives me the desires of my heart? Yes, because your heart's been made new. By delighting in Him, your heart becomes more and more like His, reflects more and more His desires, and He can actually act on those desires more and more. What about um, this other benefit? The other benefit I'd call is unshakableness. I don't think that's a word, but in look at verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole body rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. Remember I said that Christian happiness is... Christian joy is happiness, but it's more durable than uh, circumstantial happiness. Guys, Christian happiness, Christian joy is unshaken. Circumstantial joy is very shakable. It's very shakable because it's dependent on things you can lose. The more your heart is wrapped around things you can lose, the more your joy is in danger. The more it's shaky it's going to be. But Christian joy is dependent on things we can't lose. In fact, our joy is immune to the greatest threat there could possibly be. And that greatest threat is death. Right? I mean, you could be the happiest person, things are going so well, and then you're dead, right? And it's the end of joy. But death even isn't an enemy to our joy. Look at verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole body rejoices. My flesh also dwells securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or the grave, or let your holy one see corruption. David knew that somehow his death would not destroy his joy. In Acts 2, Peter quotes this about Jesus and his resurrection, right? Um, that David, a thousand years before Jesus, was speaking of the resurrection of Jesus in this passage. That God did not abandon Jesus' body to the grave, but resurrected him to the joy. And he won't abandon your body to the grave either. And I just want you to think about this. If death is not an enemy to your joy, I don't know what else could be. Okay? And I know that we all came here with different burdens. And I know some of you guys have weights on you right now that you never imagined you'd have. You know, you're at places where you never thought you'd be. Um, You have sorrows and difficulties you you just thought might only happen to other people, and now you're feeling them. Um, But I want to tell you this. If our greatest enemy, death, has been defeated, what else could stand in the way of your everlasting happiness? You know, death's been defeated. So all these things, whether financial or health or uh, relational or all these things, these are all things too that that our joy is greater than. It's, and it's not that we aren't affected by suffering. It's not that we don't weep. We're not Stoics. You know, Christian joy can coexist with sorrow. Paul said, um, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You know, so you could be sorrowful and rejoicing. But we don't weep as those who have no hope, right? We do weep, but we don't weep as those who have no hope. When we suffer and we weep, we have this joy underneath that shows verse 5 to be true. The Lord is my cup and my portion. He holds my lot uh, my, my lines have fallen in pleasant places. Guys, the equation that David has here is that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Like that he could be in a place where he has Jesus and nothing else, and he has everything. He says that his, um, his lot has fallen in, 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 in good places. The line, when he talks about lines and inheritance there in verse 6, David's reminding us of the Israelites. When they came out of the wilderness, they came into the promised land, and then the whole deal was all these people, and there's this land. It's like, okay, who gets what? And there was this whole assigning of land, right? Can you imagine how exciting that is? You think like, oh, what are we going to get? And it's like, oh, that's not a good spot. I hope I don't get that one. And, and they're all laid out. It's promised land, though, so it's all nice, right? So uh, they're laying all these out by the tribes and the clans and who gets what. That's what he talks about, the lines falling in pleasant places. These are boundary lines, right? Or when he talks about a beautiful inheritance, he's talking about land. And what's he saying? He's saying that the greatest possession he has is the Lord. Remember which tribe did not get land? It was the Levites, right? They were the priests. And so they said to the priests, to say, you know, you don't get land. You're going to be taken care of by all the rest. Your inheritance is the Lord. And what he's saying is, he's saying, well, I have the best possible property and possessions. It's beautiful. It's the Lord. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If you have Jesus, you have access to a joy that no suffering or sorrow can destroy. It's a joy that can grow, as we set our, our, our hearts on him. I just want to say one last thing before we go, and it's this. Everyone seeks joy in something. What are you seeking your joy in? And I want you to be really realistic about this. <laughs> you think about your heart. You think about your emotions. You think about your week. And I want to ask you, what are you seeking your happiness in? Because whatever you're seeking your happiness in, ultimately, you are trading your life for. Okay? We all trade our lives for some source of happiness. Are you giving your life to anything or anyone other than Jesus? You know, are you banking on somebody or something else to make you happy? Ultimately. W- whatever that is, I want you to demand two things from it. Okay? Think of that thing. And you think, well, you know, honestly, it's this relationship. You know, a really battle. You know, There's a Lord, but this is a relationship. Honestly, it's my career. Or honestly, it's my financial security. Or honestly, it's my kids and how they succeed, or whether I have them, or what they turn out like, and all those things, right? I want you to demand two things from whatever you're um, tempted to look for, for joy um, instead of God. And there are these two things. It should give you the maximum joy possible, and that joy should last you as long as you'll exist. Okay? Whatever you're going to trade your life for, it should give you maximum joy. And it should give you as long as you're exi- going to exist. you know how long you exist? Forever. Okay? <laughs> so it needs to give you maximum joy. It needs to give it to you forever. I want to end on verse 11. Take a look at it. He says, you make known to me the path of life, speaking to the Lord. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you see that? Maximum intensity, fullness of joy, never-ending duration, pleasures forevermore. Never-ending maximum happiness. And this is something you can have. We have it to some degree in this life, We have it fully in the next. Jesus gives it as a gift. Whatever sin is offering you today is far too small. And far too short to trade your life for. Remember, Jesus said, well, "What is it? What does it benefit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul?" You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you would like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.